Sound very clear. Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He comes to us from Sydney, Australia, and he published a book. title of the book is Merchants of Menace, the true story of the Nugan Hand Bank scandal. And I did not read the book, but I have listened to a podcast that's based on the book. And you can check that out on iTunes. It's titled Merchants of Menace. And his name is Peter Butt. And really fascinating research on a something that I come, came across in the past, this kind of banking st- scandal that preceded kind of the BCCI scandal. But uh, Mr. Butt can talk more about that. So, Peter, are you there? Yeah. How are you going? I'm doing well. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard of you or this story, can you talk about your background and what led you to write and then make a podcast titled Merchants of Menace? Yeah, sure. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I make uh, uh, serious documentaries, history, science, investigative uh, has become, I guess, my, uh, um, you know, the, the, the area that I want to go into more as years go on. And uh, back in uh, 2012, I think I started reinvestigating the Nugent Hand Bank scandal uh, for a documentary series, uh, which was uh, actually funded 90%, and then it collapsed in 2014. So I decided to um, write a book and then do a podcast. Basically, in it from 2012 on, I went back to the original investigators in who were involved in this story. They were both uh, they were police, the attorney general, the uh, the opposition. Uh, Attorney uh, General in the state government. Uh, there were um, corporate affairs investigators, and uh, also um, I contacted anyone that I could that was involved in the bank itself. And there were very few people that wanted to talk about it because it was a pretty um, hairy time for them. Most of them had a lot of them actually had changed their names. That's how serious it was. Oh. Yeah, so. And so for people who may not have heard of this, it was a huge scandal in Australia. Can you talk about how this group started and why it was such a huge scandal in Australia? Yeah, well, look, most people, most people didn't know about the Nugent Hand Bank. It was uh, a very small enterprise compared to normal banks. In fact, it was just basically a merchant bank without uh, being registered as such. Uh, and it didn't come to the public's arena until uh, January 1980. It had been in operation for seven years, but it didn't come into to, uh, into the news uh, until uh, one of the partners, Frank Nugent, he was an Australian lawyer, partnered with a, an American uh, ex-service person, ex-CIA, uh, Michael Hand. Frank Nugent was found dead in his Mercedes on a country road uh, with a shotgun in his hand and a bullet to his brain. And uh, then the story broke and everybody was really interested. In how come this this merchant banker is dead? He was 37 years old. Uh, people didn't know too much about it. But then uh, the story came out that uh, a few days later, the bank was shredding its documents. Uh, and then Michael Hand disappeared about uh, four months later after the coroner's inquest. Uh, so basically they started in... Uh, 1973, these two young guys, about 30 years old, Frank was a a lawyer who basically uh, got shafted because he had a a migrant background. He couldn't get 
get anywhere in the legal world. Uh, so he decided to go into investments and started a bank with uh, this American guy who turned up um, on R&R or just after the R&R period started in Australia. Uh, he'd been in uh, Vietnam. He'd been in Laos. And uh, they got together. They started this this kind of money-raising organisation. They were offering 2% more than the market to uh, investors. Uh, but they got into all sorts of nasty stuff, including uh, money laundering for drug traffickers and became the paymaster for the CIA. And how did that develop from just a simple merchant bank in Australia to this bank that had branches all over the world? Well, it started quite uh, inauspiciously. They took a, an office uh, about a, uh, 200 yards from the Opera House. So they had a very fancy address. They started uh, knocking on people's doors and saying, invest in us, invest in us. Uh, but within about 18 months, they had a uh, their first branch in Hong Kong. And it was... Uh, uh, from that point on, it looked like it was going to be very successful, but it, it, it went into a uh, hibernation when Michael Hand actually up and left. He started the, the Hong Kong branch. He sent Mike, he sent uh, Frank Nugent a, a note to say, look, I'm quitting the bank. I'm going turkey shooting, uh, turkey farming, actually, but he was actually going turkey shooting. He was going off on a CIA operation into Angola. So it slowly uh, disintegrated. Uh, while Mike was away, but then he turned up um, about a year later and said, I'm coming back to the bank. Within about two years, they had open branches all over the world, 13 branches, uh, including uh, at, on, uh, on the Asian side of things. They were, they were in Manila, they were in uh, Singapore and Chiang Mai. And one of the big mysteries was, why would you open a, a branch in Chiang Mai? Well, that was to attract drug money from the um, the, the, the barons of, of, of drugs in, in Southeast Asia, plus the Thai military. And do you think that the intent when they started the bank in, what was it, 1973, was to launder money? or Because Michael uh, Hand had a very kind of uh, intelligence military background, correct? Yes, exactly. Um Look, to, to get into their minds is a difficult thing because they were, they, <laughs> there was very little left in the, in the bank records. They shredded basically everything. And, and when Michael Hand disappeared, it was very hard to ask him questions. But you could see that uh, it, it was a bit of a, um, it, it, it was a strange uh, path that they took. And it wasn't, I don't think it was planned too well at the front because Michael Hand, um, in his blood, he had a military, he was a military man. And his interest was more in uh, building up uh, a relationship with the military people around the world and the CIA people around the world. He was, he'd actually worked um, in Laos on secret um, uh, training uh, of the Hmong hill tribes. They were trying to hold back the Vietnamese uh, insurgency into, to in, into Laos. And Michael became quite famous for that. And uh, his military con connections increased and increased and increased around the world. He was, he was uh, fated by uh, the military uh, apparatchi. And, they, uh, and that connection sort of built up into a CIA um, 
uh, into a CIA connection. Right, but didn't, my, sorry to interrupt, but didn't his time in Laos, isn't that where he worked under Bill Colby? So that was where his relationship started, was even before Nugent Handbank? Uh, yes, of course. Um, well, it, it started, yes, in the, in the 60s. Gotcha. So, so he, yeah, that, he, and Colby he was put, the head of uh, Operation, was it Phoenix Operation? Uh, it was called um, – it was Phoenix, yes, yeah. but but he was there on a secret project called uh, 404, oh. which was training the Hmong tribes. Gotcha. Yes, and so he did work under William Colby, and that connection stayed because William Colby became the uh, um, legal advisor to the Nugent Hand Bank in 1979, just before it collapsed. Right. So, I mean, so this guy has a background. He had a high IQ. I think you – and the thing he had like a 131 IQ, so very intelligent guy, but super sketchy traveling around, starting band banks popped up. And they were talking about substantial numbers for back then for 19, what was it, 1975 to 1980, correct? Yeah. Substantial money amounts of money, of course, yes. Uh, but we never know exactly how much because of the, you know the destruction of records. There was at least $50 million missing uh, from the bank in just deposits from, you know, the everyday people, American service people working in the Middle East and, uh, and Australians, just mums and dads who put money into, into this bank. Wow. Uh, yeah. So real substantial kind of money loss. But then, I mean, during its time, he attracts a bunch of kind of deep state type people from the U.S. to work at Nugent Hand, correct? Yeah, there were there was a when it collapsed, there were five uh, definitely known CIA uh, former operatives. Um, he, he had connections through through uh, the Navy and uh, the military, um, and he recruited a number of high. He had admirals, uh, generals, who were all part of the of the bank structure. So yeah, he, exactly. He was he was very well connected, and the bank um, was seemingly going in that way. That you know, you you mentioned the the other banks that came afterwards. H, HSB, B, BC, uh, BCCI was one of them. That's right. Banks that's of right. Credit Commerce International. Yeah, it was kind of the precursor to that to those banks. Yeah. Right. So they were doing all kinds of clearing all over the world. Right. So they're working with Hong Kong triads, Golden Triangle, heroin. So Hand is working with these real underground people who need money laundering, right? So people would just draw. I mean, I think in your in your uh, podcast, it's just like somebody dropped off money and said, figure out, you know, I'll get a receipt later or something, right? Yeah, he said, look, if you're going to screw me now, if you're going to screw me with or without a receipt one way or another, it doesn't matter, you know, <laughs> you're going to screw me. <laughs> right. Well, you, he had all of these. And so then I think you, there was... The regulators of Australia um, knew something was going on and were investigating Nugan and Hand, correct, during while the bank was operating? Yeah, the first inkling they got was was to do with uh, Frank Nugan. Frank Nugan's family came from uh, a town called Griffith, which was uh, halfway between Sydney and Melbourne, and it was a, a dope-growing area. It had just become a dope-growing area when the bank started. And uh, they got, they were suspicious that uh, Frank's uh, brother, uh, who, who ran a, a massive transport uh, for company for 
the produce that was coming out of there was also moving drugs and was dealing with the drug traffickers moving their their uh, marijuana to the markets. And so um, they became suspicious of that. They started to investigate um, because there was the, the drug issue was becoming quite large. And, um, and basically they were they were on the money because that's exactly what they were doing. Uh, and so for Frank Frank Nugent, uh, he he didn't he believed he was above the law he 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 believed that he was not going to be caught and uh, when they found his body he had a uh, bet dead he was in his car they they went to the boot of his car they pulled out his briefcase there was a ledger with twenty four drug traffickers listed oh, uh, wow. in the ledger so he was probably kind of working as a front man for them right so or something or par perhaps considering that all the uh, documentation was shredded right yeah basically how it worked was when when michael was away um uh, over in angola and frank was left to his own um you know, his own resources he started to move money for drug traffickers and he worked out a way of moving money internationally that nobody uh, could work out um, how it was happening. So basically it was called a contra where a deposit, uh, a drug trafficker, would, drug trafficker would come into the Sydney office, hand over a couple of hundred thousand dollars. They'd be able to go to Hong Kong and pick up that hundred thousand dollars minus 15%. Uh, in Hong Kong, and it was basically coming out of deposits out of Hong Kong. It was totally illegal at the time. I mean, today we can we can move money quite easily, but in those days it was a lot of a lot of money that was moving, and it, it basically there was no paper trail. So that's and that actually increased the the drug problem in Australia. Right. So. There was all kinds of shady transfers of money, but then there was also when when the bank went defunct, uh, I think that there was a commission, right, a royal commission to investigate how this whole bank operated and collapsed. Correct. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it, a royal commission is kind of like a you know grand jury investigation, I guess, but it's without a jury. Uh, it's uh, done by a very high power powered. Um, you know they've got freedom to go anywhere. They they basically dig deep into this bank. But uh, for the from the pre, there were other investigators working uh, independently. There was the drug bureau, where the narcotics bureau was investigating. There was the police were investigating. The corporate affairs were investigating. But the royal commission basically missed. You know did messed up. And uh, and Frank Frank Nugent's uh, legacy was that uh, they they didn't basically find anything. That's that was it. Frank Frank had um, he'd left everything there to be found, and Mike Hand destroyed it. Gotcha. Right. So Mike Hand comes in after Nugent dies and says, threatens everybody, and then the all of the destruction of the records takes place. Right. So right away. Yeah. The corporate affairs turned up at the door. Uh, a you can hand a few days later and uh, the staff were just shredding everything. Right. So there's all this. And there was a tie in. I, I think you talked about, or I think I remember there was an anti-drug crusader, Donald McKay, who was murdered. He was kind of an infamous 
killing in Australia. Can you talk about that and how it might be tied to New Guinea? Sure. Well, this is, uh, he was a, um, a conservative politician. Oh, yeah, conservative politically connected person in the town of Griffith where we're talking about where the uh, drugs were, were basically coming from, marijuana. It was a big deal down there. He was trying to stop the drug trade. Uh, he ended up, um, well, we know that he was shot outside of a, a uh, hotel. Uh, his body was never found. Um, and there was a massive inquiry into that. They discovered, they well, they believed that there were three people involved by the names of Sergi, Sergi and another fellow. Uh, these were the big growing, um, marijuana growing families down there in Griffith. Now, um, the Nugans became involved because uh, they found uh, an auditor within the bank, with, sorry, within uh, the trucking company, discovered uh, cash checks in the names of those people and went to uh, the Corporate Affairs Commission and blew the whistle on them and said that th this looks like it's money to pay off for the killing of this politician. So it was a very big deal, and that really put the heat onto Nugan Hand. The Corporate Affairs people were, were watching uh, the Nugan Hand Bank. Uh, they were inquiring. They, were, they basically ended up charging... Um, Frank Nugent and his brother. Frank Nugent was a director in the family company. And that was beginning of the downfall of Frank Nugent. He, he started to drink. Uh, he was drinking about a, a bottle and a half of scotch every day. Wow. He'd start at 8 o'clock in the morning. He became out of control. Uh, and uh, the, it was the beginning of the end, I guess, for, for Frank Nugent and ultimately um, the Nugent Hand Bank. And that was, and so there's a question about whether he committed suicide or he was suicided, like it was a fake suicide. What is your thought about what happened to Frank Nugent? Well, it's it's probably the most interesting question because it's never been answered. There were plenty of people who would like to have had him uh, sh shut up. He was he was going to go go to court uh, very soon after the date of his death. Uh, and his brother did go to jail because of, of uh, activities related to the family company. So Frank was Frank may have seen the writing on the wall and didn't want to go through that, and he could have committed suicide. It, it looked like a suicide. It's very hard to set up somebody in a car with a, a, a rifle. Um, he was sitting in the driver's seat. He blew his head apart, you know, and... Nobody knows why he drove 120 kilometers away from his home to do it. Nobody could work out why he did it where he did. Um, there was a lot of suspicion about the, the police that turned up four o'clock in the morning and found his body. How did the police know to be driving down a country road in the middle of nowhere at four o'clock in the morning and come across a fresh suicide? You know, so there are these kind of questions that I guess the podcast really goes into depth into that. I'm I'm kind of agnostic <laughs> about this, whether he did it himself or whether it was done. It was convenient to everybody. It right. was convenient convenient to Frank. It was convenient to everybody. The drug traffickers. It was convenient to the family. It, everybody w was against Frank. Frank had had gone off the rails, if you know what I mean. Right, and then they blamed everything on Frank. Right, so if anything went wrong, it, it was him. And then he killed himself. So he stole the money. He did this. 
And he was actually, I mean, I think part of the podcast talks about this guy, Doug Sapper, where he was trying to pay somebody 50000 which at the time is a substantial amount of money, to, I think, go after your, what would be the attorney general of one of the states. Isn't yes, that right? Yes, state. was That's right. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, Frank, Frank had already um, opened up um, a fake Swiss bank account in the attorney general's name. He was after the attorney general because the attorney general was after him. And so uh, then uh, uh, Frank offers $50,000 to anyone who can, can get rid of the attorney general. And so a couple of guys went up to Hong Kong, uh, approached Doug Sapper, who was a, an army mate of, um, of Mike Hans, and Doug Sapper said, well, I'm not your guy. Uh, I go down there to Sydney, kill this guy, and you shoot me in the lobby. You know, I don't get out of the place he could he could read read these people he, he he could see the scenario that was going to unfold and he turned it down but it was pretty strong evidence uh that uh, frank nugan was was serious about getting rid of um the attorney general right so there's just all kinds of intrigue and cutthroat but dagger spy versus spy type of stuff cloak and dagger stuff going on and none of the so the money disappears the 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 bank goes belly up, and my and then Michael Hand disappears, right? Yeah, Michael Hand. Uh, he, the last time he was seen by anybody was uh, when he walked out of the coroner's inquest uh, into into Frank Nugent's death, which basically said it was suicide. So Mike walks out, gets into a car, and and is basically never seen again. Now, but what ha what he did do is he there were. He, um, Michael Hand was connected to uh, a bar owner. He was uh, his mentor in Australia was an American bar owner by the name of um, Bernie Houghton. He owned a, uh, a bourbon, the Bourbon and Beefsteak Bar at Kings Cross, which was the seedy, you know, drugs six kind of like uh, red light district or something. Red light district, yeah. And Bernie was a fixer. And Bernie knew everybody in the military. Bernie was former CIA himself. And so uh, Mike um, said, "All right, we've got to get out of this country. They're going to—they're not going to let me out of the country. I'm going to have to face the music. So, what do we do?" So um, Bernie had a, a, a former uh, colleague who owned a um, a meat company, uh, and uh, so Mike went to hide uh, above his his premises, uh, and Mike then called on. Uh, a former CIA operative uh, from Arizona who came out. He was a specialist in photography. Uh, they created a, a brand-new passport um, in a different, in a, um, the fellow who was looking after him, the meat guy, he had a, an employee. He just asked for his, um, his birth certificate and things like that, created a new passport in this guy's name, and... Um, Created a disguise. He looked like Clouseau out of you know the the Pink Panther movies. Mm -hmm. very, uh, but somehow he got him got out of the country. Um, they both left at the same time. I've got the the, the um, I was able to get hold of the um, departure um, records for these people, and so they both moved out of the country. And Mike then disappeared and was never seen again. Right. So that's gone. And so what was the result of the collapse of Nugent Hand? Was there payouts? Did the government try to uh, remunerate people, or how did what what were what happened with the wreckage of this firm? Everybody lost. 
um, including um, um, you know uh, American workers that were over in the Middle East and American military people in the Middle East. It, um, there were mums and dads down in Sydney. Um, they just all lost their money, and and then a lot of people didn't come forward because of the notoriety of this uh, bank. Uh, a lot of people just did not want to be connected to it. And so they didn't put in an application for, for you know, money. There, there was obviously a liquidator that came, came in and divvied up what was left, but there were, you know, it was just peanuts compared to, to what was lost. Wow, it's just incredible. Just an incredible amount of money for that time, $50 million. And I think that Stuart Royal Commission pushed, pushed something in 1985, at least on your podcast, that said Nuke and Hand Limited was at all times insolvent. So it was never a functioning bank with uh, resources. It was always just a big kind of Ponzi scheme, take money here, put it over there. Pretty incredible that they got yeah. away for it for seven years. They they got away with it. Yeah, that I don't know. How, these uh, companies, I don't think would, would ever last too long. We've seen other CIA-connected companies come a cropper. So, you know, <laughs> they don't last too long. <laughs> Yeah, and there were big names. I mean, William Colby was the head of the CIA at one point. I think he was involved in a lot of things going on, right? His nuke and hand was happening here in the States. He was involved in the, I uh, can't remember the name of the commission, but, you know, huge things going into all the CIA's cloak and dagger stuff. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, Edwin Black's people might know his name. He's connected to Ted Jackley, the blonde ghost who was over in Vietnam at that time. So yeah. a bunch of huge names in 1979. So, um Connected, very well connected. So Michael Hand disappears 1980, but that's not the full story, is it? No, well, it was a bit, Newgan Ham was one of these stories in Australia that was kind of full of mystery. Uh, we never ever got the big story, you know, the full story. And with Michael Hand's disappearance, we knew that, um, you know, he was the person who knew everything or knew most, knew what happened. Let's find him. Uh, and every journalist, every investigative journalist uh, in the city, in Sydney, was looking for him. Look, even in the country, were looking for him. Uh, and um, I had no ambition of finding him. Um, I did while I was writing the book. I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. You know, uh, everybody else has failed, so what chance have I got? But uh, as I got to the last chapter um, of my book, I thought, I'll, I'll. I'll give it another go. And I just made a few deductions. And one was that um, anybody that's involved in the espionage world uh, cannot, they can change their identity, but invariably they will never change their first name because if somebody from their past comes up to them and they're with, with somebody from the current world that they're living in and uh, they say, you know, uh, hi, Jack, but you're, re you're, you're really known as Mike, you know, um, you, 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 then you've got a problem. So they keep their first name. And I thought, well, maybe he might even keep his middle name, which was John, J-O-N, as opposed to J-O-H-N, which was more common, um, 10 times more common. So, and I thought, well, one day his money might have run out and he might have had to go back into business. So I thought, well, you know, he's probably back in the US. He's run out of money. He started a new business. He must be registered somewhere. And I just thought I'll go from state to state and look at through company records. And uh, it didn't take very long, but uh, I, I went from, where was it, New York, New Jersey, um, Arizona, um, Washington State, 
And then I went to another one nearby, and uh, there I found some records with a Michael John uh, Fuller. And uh, I looked at the signatures on the um, on his company records over there, and they matched the Michael John of the signatures here that I had from 1977. Wow. Uh, and then I checked his um, social security number. It was exactly the same, so I knew I had him. And... Um, I basically got a private detective on to uh, from uh, you know, from his state to go down there and uh, capture on film uh, Michael Hand uh, alive, and then I went to um, 60 Minutes here, which is same you know is allied to your 60 Minutes in the right. US, and they jumped at the story, and uh, so we outed him. So they they flew to the US to confront this person believed to be Michael Hand, correct? That's right, yeah. And yeah. so, well, and that was what, 2015? So a quarter of a century had passed, and this was, would you say that was 100% confirmation that that was the same person? Oh, absolutely. I had his, I had his photograph, uh, and I was able to mar marry it with photographs of him um, that were online uh, in his new identity. identity. Um, they matched perfectly. Everything was him. I mean, he knew it was him. He knew he, he was caught. When he was caught, when the cameras were rolling and, and walking towards him as he walked out of a store, he knew he was gone. And um, his company said, you know, this is all a misunderstanding. <laughs> right, but he didn't even answer. So he didn't even say yes or no. So 60 Minutes Australia is asking him questions that he just kept his mouth shut, which... Uh, can tell you a lot. I think that's very telling that he just never even issued a general denial to them. And what happened after that? Well, um, the people, uh, it, it was big news over there. It was big news in America, um, news, uh, Newsweek and uh, ProPublica and uh, other um, newspapers picked it up. It was big news around the world, in fact, because he was big just because of his background and the story, you know, it's full of intrigue. So it it it, it forced him to uh, once he knew that he was got he was finished. Um, before the sixty minutes program went to air, he signed off his he started a manufacturing company. He signed that over to his employees, and basically, I think he went underground from that moment on. Um, the the local news. Uh, TV news uh, services um, in his area, which was Idaho Falls. They covered the story. They interviewed um, neighbours who said they weren't too happy to be living next door to this guy who ripped off people. And um, so I don't. we really don't know if he moved, but uh, he did go sort of underground. And then we heard only just recently, I think it was early this year, that he'd passed away or oh, end wow. of last year. And uh, his company came out to say that, uh, you know, basically said that um, he'd retired, but he still stayed in touch with the company daily. So, well, interesting. Yeah, it was probably so not just a, a full retirement. How old would he have been? Do you know what year he was born? So he's probably born in the 40s or 50s, right? He, he was. He was born the day of uh, the Pearl at Harbor. Oh, attack. so 1941, right? So mm. he was he was definitely in his close to 80 then when he passed away. Yeah, or 70, that's 80, right. 80, yeah. yeah. So he, yeah. wow. So what a life that he had, that he had actually a quarter century of uh anonymity for some time i mean who knows what he was doing for that that uh quarter century 
Well, we do know something, and that was that uh, after he left um, the Nugenhan Bank, uh, uh, disappeared from Australia, he certainly went underground, as did virtually every American uh, that was involved in the bank, and there were lots of them. Um, they kind of disappeared. Some changed their names. Michael obviously changed his name, and he, because he had the CIA uh, connections, mm -hmm. He, he was uh, asked to go to, this is our understanding from records that I have, that he was asked to go to Honduras to train the Honduran um, um, military and to how to um, counterinsurgents into Nicaragua. Hmm. Because, the, you know, so it was basically... So the, the communist or left-wing insurgents, yeah. he was training against them, right? Exactly, and so this was just just in the early days of the kind of the Oliver North story. Right. Wow. Mm. So he was just mixing with all of these characters, and then Bill Colby dies a very suspicious death. They don't find his body for nine days or something like that, supposedly on a water outing. I mean, just a lot. Just the the cloak and dagger stuff that went on for decades. This story is really incredible. Just an incredible story. Yeah. Well, he went also went on to start training companies. Uh, it went to this company went to uh, uh, Africa and other countries, uh, other a lot of countries in Africa, um, teaching them um, how to become special forces troops. You know, so which he was, and I mean, they said that like I think early in the podcast, he like cut off some guy's head in Vietnam. Like he was a real savage with a high IQ, really. You know, one of these kind of deep state operative types. Yes, he was. And, um, you know, it was, my, my wife was always concerned that I was going to get knocked off <laughs> for finding him. But uh, look, uh, you, you, you just got to you just got to uh, um, accept that if it happens, but it's not going to happen. You know? Right. I mean, he's probably, you know, he probably uh, had a sigh of relief when he passed away, I would assume. Just one, <laughs> she had thing, a one last thing to worry about. My wife did. She said, "You sure is dead." <laughs> oh, really? Well, that's the whole thing with these guys. You never really know. But I mean, his time, like all the rest of ours, is, uh, comes around when you're 70, 80, or ninety. But uh, yeah, what a great story! But you've done other research. There's other things on your website. Um, this is a great story, podcast and book, which you can get from MerchantsOfMenace.net. But can you talk about some of your other inquiries or investigative journalism uh, documentaries that you've done? Because I see some other ones here. Sure. Um, yeah, look, um, I, I basically go into uh, into Australian history. Australian history, is, everything's accessible now after, you know, after 30 years to 50 years. So I specialise in nuclear, Australia's nuclear history mm -hmm. and I also do work on crime stories. And here we have a, a quite a, one of the most amazing crimes of the 20th century. It's It's... So unusual. Uh, it's about um, a couple called Dr. Bogle and Mrs. Chandler. And Dr. Bogle was a, um, a physicist who was found dead on the banks of uh, uh, Sydney River um, on New Year's Day 1963. With, he was a married man, but he was with another man's wife, a colleague's wife. They were both found dead and they could never work out how they died. Uh, it's one of the most um, extraordinary stories in, in Australian crime. And uh, I happened to discover uh, um, a cause of death, which um, didn't come up at the time. So it's it's been with the coroner for a number of years now. We're trying to actually push the coroner to 
to establish that how they died. And um, other cases I do look in espionage and espionage history. Here we had a 50-year-old a, a case, nearly 60-year-old case of a, uh, a spy case that went wrong, uh, a, a rendezvous with uh, a double agent and uh, a Russian um, spy who were basically, that it was to do with uh, nuclear secrets here, British nuclear secrets. Mm -hmm. uh, it collapsed and um, they had, um, the, the spy agency had um, all of this footage that it had filmed, so um, surveillance footage of the case. I collected that over the years and I went back into the final rendezvous which collapsed and uh, I basically identified somebody within that footage who was the Russian spy. And, um, and, and what was the name of that case, or how is it commonly uh, referred to in Australia? Mm. Is there is there like a title for it or something that? Yeah, people... it's called the it's called the Skripov case. Skripov case. Skripov, yeah. And Skripov was the first secretary of the Soviet embassy in in uh, Australia, um, and he was after British nuclear uh, secrets. Which we had the British atomic tests happening on our land. Uh, so, yeah, so that was the name of the case. My film should be available. There's ABC iView. Our television network is called ABC and uh, iView, and it's now available internationally. It's called Final Rendezvous. Final Rendezvous. And who was Tony Llewellyn Jones? You have another title here, I Spry. I Spry. Uh, Tony Llewellyn Jones is, was an actor, actually. Oh, <laughs> he, oh he's he the actor in, the, in, the, in that? Okay. Sorry. Yeah, that, that's in a, in a story called Ice Bright. That was about the first 20 years of our spy agency called Asio. Yeah. Oh, okay, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you got some good espionage uh, cases. This one was fascinating, Merchants of Menace. I didn't see it on Amazon, but that was maybe just the U.S. version, so people can maybe go to the Australian version and get a copy of it or a Kindle version. Or Where can people find the book? Uh, yeah, the book is at, on Amazon, uh, and it is uh, it should be available. If you can't get it on the American uh, um, site, go to the Australian one. But it's uh, you've got to mention um, Merchants of Menace, the true story of the Nugent Bank. Since I wrote this book, I mean, mine was the only title with Merchants of Menace, but there's about six or seven now, or ten or even uh, books called Merchants of Menace. Um, so you've just got to search it out, but it's there. It is okay. I didn't see it at the, my first try, so it is there. So you just put out a new version, uh, May eighteenth, twenty twenty one. Is that correct? Yeah, it's Rock got uh, it's got some new chapters at the end. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, I didn't see that at first try. So it's there. It's here on the U.S. version. If people want to check that out, and then your website again is merchantsofmenace.net, Correct. That's right. Yeah, and it's got lots of uh, extras on there. Yeah. So yeah, I see a lot of we've done a lot of different type of works and a lot of different uh, books and things that are interesting. But yeah, really fascinating. Great podcast. Do you are the narrator of the podcast, and I'll put the link to the show on iTunes in the show description here and on the my podcast, so people can check that out as well. But again, the title of the book and podcast is Merchants of Menace: The True Story of the Nugenhand Bank Scandal by Peter Butt. Thank you so much for your time, Peter. Thanks, William. Cheers. All right, take care. All right, don't go anywhere. Right. Stay there. Stay there. Stay there. Okay. <laughs>